Hi, I'm Kylie. And I'm Soraya. And welcome to But, but now, now What? The podcast that has no pacer test and encourages you not to Google quotes about exercise. Because both have terrible results. Just as a quick reminder, we're going to organize the podcast by sections. First, we'll follow up with past commitments and then give a brief overview of the new topic for a few minutes. We'll make sure to include resources and references to the information that we researched for this episode in the show notes. If this happens to be a topic that you aren't familiar with, those will be a good starting place in learning more. And then when you're feeling sufficiently frustrated, not knowing what to do next with the information you just learned, you can return and listen to the rest of the podcast episode. The rest of each episode will be geared towards discussion about what to do next with what you just learned about this specific topic. And then we'll finish out with a commitment for us to focus on for the next week. Occasionally, we will have a segment highlighting, but now what moments of the week? Kylie and I, or listeners writing in, will share their personal experience asking questions about new information that they come across. In this section, we aren't going to address the answer to those questions, but we'll simply talk about what sparked the question. We may use these questions in later episodes as primary topics. Kylie, do you have any but now what moments you want to share? I do. Uh, I also know that you're going to laugh at me when I tell you what I want to share this week, uh, because it's something that I probably talk about every single time I see you. Oh, yes. Um, so yeah, if you could guess <laughs> the one topic that I bring up more than anything else, uh, you'd probably know that I want to talk about abundance. The oh, idea yeah. of abundance. I was going to ask for the letter A. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we were having a conversation about this. I think it was last week. Um, after seeing the podcast come together and mm-hmm. actually getting some of that feedback from listeners um, and feeling the excitement of actually seeing like a creative project take off and like seeing our vision come to life. Right. It was, it caused me to have a lot of like self-reflection back to other previous uh, creative projects that I wanted to start. Um, last year I told myself I was going to get this blog up and running and I'd done a lot of writing for it, a lot of prep work, and then I never ended up publishing anything. Um, but I also think there's, so there's a lot of like external factors that I can see that have impacted my ability to like start and finish things in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, global pandemic. Oh. Couldn't have, couldn't have couldn't expected that you. one. <laughs> nope. Um, but also, there's a lot of internal motivators that I also now look back and see um, that I was I was really telling myself that I didn't have anything val- of value to contribute, anything that was uniquely mine, mm-hmm. um, and that starting a creative project was not going to have any payoff because everyone already has enough podcasts to listen mm-hmm. to. Everyone has enough poetry blogs to read um and so there was definitely an idea in my mind that there was a limited number of opportunities for these things um and that anything of impact had already been done and I really had to shift to that abundance mindset that we talked about Mm -hmm. um the idea that there are limitless potentials for creative ideas um and creative projects that could be undertaken Um, And anything that was really successful did start as, you know, someone's idea that probably initially doubted. Right. They also thought like, uh, it's already been done or someone could do it better than I can. Absolutely. They also probably started recording sitting on a bed with a (laughs) a folding chair. chair. (laughs) So look uh, at us now. We've really come a long ways. We're using a microphone that isn't um, a a phone microphone. Yeah, we finally have two microphones. Two microphones. But they are now clipped onto our cups. (laughs) 
So we still have somewhere to go. It's only up from here. Um, but I think before, you know, before you're going to create anything of impact or value, uh, you first have to believe that you can do it and that there is that, um, opportunity available to you. So, mm-hmm. um, anyways, our conversation had been my, but now what moment? Cause I had to start thinking through what are other ideas that I've had that I oh, told yeah. myself, um, I couldn't do because everything had already been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of taking that scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset, um, believing that there is more opportunities out there, um, and that our, our voices and our Mm -hmm. contributions are meaningful and will be unique, um, because they're our own and there Mm -hmm. are things that we'll do that will be impactful. We just gotta, we gotta start somewhere. I bet that resonates with a lot of people. I think people creative people in general feel that way about their interpretation of life and whatever they've created. And then I think also professionally, a lot of people will be like, oh, I'm interested in this field, but I won't be the best in it. There are already so many good mm-hmm. people in it. So it's not worth even trying because either I'm going to disappoint myself or it's not going to make a difference. Um, so yeah, I bet that. Absolutely. Well, so much of that even comes from like, from the time that we're in kindergarten, you know, everything is a, is ranked and we're always like up against our classmates. You go from like being graded against your classmates all through school to, you know, you go into college and you start looking into a professional field and there's always going to be some kind of like selection and Mm -hmm. someone's always going to have the most internships under their belt or the most connections. And it's really easy to look at those things and then assume that what you have going for you is not going to it's not even worth pursuing mm-hmm. um, because someone else could do it better. We've kind of made life a competition. Yeah. Darwin is just like... Mm. <laughs> His impact can still be felt <laughs> in big ways. But instead of like thinking through... Um, thinking of the world in terms of like who can do it the best, um, I wish we just saw things more as like, you know, everyone could do it differently. Like, so who can yeah. do it differently? Who can do something that no one else has done yet? Um, and again, our contributions matter just because they're unique to, to us and our mindset and perspective on life. So that's a really beautiful insane input. I'm excited to see what other creative projects we undertake and also especially excited to see this one come to life. Mm-hmm. So let's check in on our efforts to finish last episode's challenge. Just as a reminder, our challenge was to question our use of makeup and any implicit biases that we have around others' use of makeup and our own use of makeup. So, Kylie, how did this challenge go for you? Well, it's technically only been a couple of days since we recorded our last episode, um, but already actually this challenge has been really meaningful for me. Um, I have like a different level of awareness as I'm getting ready in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've kind of been asking myself those questions that we went through, um, either out loud or just internally about what purpose, um, my makeup use is serving and how it's making me feel. Uh, it kind of stuck out to me how being with myself and taking that time to create a fun makeup look, um, did feel like I was like creating art, um, and we did have a listener who wrote in, actually, I wanted to kind of share what they Um, said. Do you want to read what they said? Yeah. So this uh, listener said, I have struggled for a long time feeling that makeup is just an archaic form of misogyny and have always just felt deeply uncomfortable with the idea of makeup as something created for the male gaze. 
but I felt like there were so many reinforcing moments surrounding makeup and self-care, self-expression, and individuality that it helped to open my eyes a little to the different positive implications of makeup in our society. Thanks. Love you both. And uh, we love you, too. We we really love you and are so grateful for the feedback. <laughs> I'm singing, like, completely jarring you. <laughs> to take me back, but only in the best way. Um, but that, that feedback meant a lot, I think, if... Honestly, if nothing else ever came from us recording so far five episodes, mm-hmm. um, getting that one bit of feedback um, did reaffirm to me that um, it does matter that we're opening mm-hmm. these topics of conversation with people, um, even just so that they can ask themselves the same questions about how these things are impacting their day to day and how oftentimes there, there's so much more to it than mm-hmm. what, what meets the eye. Um, again, I think I had the same idea about makeup at some point, and I was like, it's not very feminist of me to mm-hmm. be wearing makeup. <laughs> and also, as I'm putting on my makeup in the morning, I'm never doing it with the thought of, like, how to impress the men in my life. Yeah. Um, so if that's the case, like, there could be some more compounding factors that I need to consider and um, why I use makeup the way I do. Yeah. I'm happy to report that uh, Caleb did not feel... Uh, called out per se by my comment in the last one but said that it was like kind of a good call to action and came to me the next day and was like did you notice do I glow a little differently <laughs> he did his skincare routine. he did his skincare routine. oh good on him I know um and it also kind of motivated me to ask Caleb um when I want to to do my makeup or my skincare like can I have this time to myself right now rather than mm-hmm. Ophelia? If you have a toddler or, or a small animal, I'm sure that you can relate to this. The bathroom <laughs> is a sacred place that is not given its sanctity enough. You are not left alone. <laughs> um, but asking for that was really nice because it did kind of make me feel like I had a little moment of self-care to myself, whether it was like three or five minutes or 15. Um, and I wouldn't have thought to do that if we hadn't talked about that. I love that. If you're listening to this episode because you are trying to heal your relationship with exercise, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, If talking about exercise doesn't feel safe for you, though, please consider skipping this episode. We won't be talking about any specific traumatic experiences with exercise, but we still understand that as a whole, the subject has hurt a lot of people. And if you are a straight-sized individual, I hope that you know that fat people have struggled with this in very different ways and without the aid of a movement that is growing, but still not progressively and actively supporting plus-sized fat people. I think that call is especially important because one of the largest effects of our culture that is driven by fat phobia is the harmful ways that folks ascribe like a morality to our physicality. We've been taught that exercise is a punishment that our bodies are meant to endure uh, to counteract, you know, our calorie intake or periods of inactivity. Uh, And those ideas combined with rampant weight discrimination have also created increased challenges for fat folks who are looking to heal that relationship with exercise as well. We just want you to know that we see you, we love you, and we support you. Okay, today we are discussing exercise and specifically transitioning to a healthy relationship with exercise. And we are talking about it because it makes me mad. Um, But before we get into it, I want to preface that there is so much information out there on this topic, lots of resources, and that this is a pretty broad topic today. So we can't include all the information in this one episode. That being said, I want to ask you, Kylie, what words or images come to mind when you think of exercising? 
I think my feelings about this question probably would change a lot depending on my current activity levels, um, where my activity levels have definitely changed a lot since COVID, uh, without access to like workout options and the fact that the air quality where we live right now has been consistently ranking number one worst in the world. I know. I have (laughs) seasonal asthma as well. So in the winter, I like go outside and I'm just gasping. Yeah, no. Like I think I'm safer inside than outside for right now. (laughs) So as of right now, my exercise levels are low. And I think because that definitely elicits some like feelings of shame or embarrassment, um, more of the imagery that's coming to mind is related to um, those emotions. Um, but that being said, there's definitely been other times where I've been more active mm-hmm. and where, you know, high levels of activity were just like a regular part of my daily routine. And I don't think the word itself would have sparked quite the same emotional response. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, to get the gears turning, uh, I want you, I want to set up a scenario for you and then have you paint the picture for us the audience and I. Um, so what are your earliest memories of playing? Oh, this is an easier question because <laughs> I did love playing. I was a very active and energetic kid and a lot of my best memories from my childhood were of playing night games with my friends. Oh. Uh, so there was about four of us girls living on my street who were around the same age. Uh, we told everyone that we were sisters, even though we weren't. Um, but we loved, we would be out late, like almost every single night playing games. So we'd play capture the flag, ghost in the graveyard, cops and robbers. Um, and our parents, (laughs) (laughs) uh, our parents would have to come and essentially drag us back home, uh, to eat dinner and go to bed when, uh, it started getting dark because we had so much fun. I wish I had known you as a child so that I could have played such fun night games. I was fun back then. <laughs> I know I'm not fun now. Now I'm like, it's nine o'clock, time for bed. Okay, next time that we record, we'll just play some night games before. Okay, perfect. And you'll see a different side of me. I'm also really competitive. <laughs> you have seen that side of me, actually. I do think, though, that something fundamentally changes for us as we go through elementary and middle school towards our view of exercise. Uh, So I do want to highlight that. Firstly, the presidential fitness test doesn't help any matters. If you want to listen to a phenomenal episode on that, you should go look up Maintenance Phase's episode titled The President's Physical Fitness Test. It's released, it was released in October 2020. So go look that up. Secondly, the way education is structured under a nation that was built on factory work and capitalism, it favors efficiency and role learning. So school is set up so that we can become used to a nine to five schedule when we enter the workforce later in life and school is essentially a child's first job. Oh, I hate that. I've never thought about it like that. Yes. Jobs don't usually have room for play. So our play and moving our bodies were turned into goals and purpose-filled activity. Mm -hmm. Factor in that our society is incredibly anti-fat and bingo bongo, you have a recipe for exercise equaling a need to gain muscle and lose weight. Mm. And then they will continue to measure that in school and medicine and in society for the rest of your life. Perfect. (laughs) And because of this weird relationship, oftentimes exercise is used as a punishment for not fitting within the standard um, fitness uh, goals and like measure that's socially propped up for us. Um, And because our view of exercise became what it was, what were some of the things that you liked to do during recess prior to that, Kylie? Oh, 
Uh, I actually loved playing basketball with the boys in my grade. Uh, there were only like two of us girls who somehow infiltrated this big group of guys um, who would play basketball every single break. Mm-hmm. And I've stayed friends with a few of them. And one of them just barely a couple months ago who I saw um, brought up how aggressive I was in like sixth grade when I played You're basketball. Like a flower. Yeah. Flower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always fouling. Uh, yeah. And he still holds it against me that one time I accidentally, um, accidentally hit him pretty hard and he fell and like cut up his knees and wrists and wow. ended up in like the nurse's office. And I don't think I'll ever live that down, but it was like at that point, it was a fun way to like get out any like, you know, pent up, pent up, pent up breeze. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I also grew up loving sports. I, and I played basketball and volleyball, um, Arizona is pretty flat, but it is technically in a bowl, in a valley, so I would hike a lot. Um, and I actually threw discus in track. You did? I did. I didn't know that. <laughs> I was me and 40 football guys. Wow. I was very small. Imagine. Um, like, they were just really strong people. And then I also practiced taekwondo, and I did special... I did um, junior Olympics, Um and went to Florida. That was my first time going to competing wow. in junior Olympics. So I'm sitting next to a celebrity. Yeah, basically, you know, eleven year old Soraya. She was uh, pretty cool. Um, so I liked competing just like you and moving my body and in every single one of the sports. Um, guess what was demonized? What? Conditioning and running. Mm. Yeah. So it was a punishment for the fact that my body didn't perform the way that it was meant to in those competitions. And I'm not saying... Do you saying, mean this by, like, coaches would yeah, put that on you? Yeah, 100%. Okay. And I'm not saying that athletes shouldn't condition or run to keep up their skills and athleticism for the sport. And I'm also not saying that if you want a healthy relationship with exercise that you can never run again. Um, but I do think that just as... All food has nutrition. All movement can be helpful. Mm. And that you should listen to your body and mind and what you want to do so that you can have fun and empower yourself. Do you have any thoughts on that, Kylie? That is interesting because I never played any sports like competitively. So I guess I didn't have that same, those same ideas uh-huh. kind of taught to me. But <clears throat> it was similar. It was interesting that you did mention um, last week um, that the same way that you wanted to adopt more um, intuitive practices with your makeup use. Right. Um, the intuitive exercise is also something that we sh- we should be practicing, mm-hmm. but don't practice. Um, because our bodies are truly so much smarter than we give them credit for. Uh, I'm just grateful that my body regularly signals to me when I need certain things or when I need less of certain things. Right. Um, and because I'm also an individual who suffers a lot from seasonal depression, I sometimes can't tell the difference between my body, like, crying at me for movement Mm -hmm. or for sun. Right. Um, And so sometimes I'll just um, listen to those cues and aim to get both when Mm -hmm. my body is telling me that I need one or the other. I feel that. I feel that sometimes with water, too. I'll be like, Mm. I am so angry. Or, like... Uh, yeah, usually angry. Like, I'm really angry. Why am I so mad? I'm like, can I drink water? No. I'm a thirsty little girl. Yeah. <laughs> you need some water. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and despite the horrible air quality where we live, we really are also super fortunate that where we live has so many fun things to do outside. Yeah. We do have a lot of hiking. We have a lot of um, outdoor sports and a lot of opportunities for uh, moving and also um, some beautiful views. Like mm-hmm. I personally love the reward of hiking, um, getting to the end of a hike. And after all of that 
strenuous movement, um, you get to the top and the, the payoff is that there's an incredible view. I heard there are two kinds of hikers and there are the hikers like you just mentioned that you like do it for the view. And then there are the hikers that, um, like just, uh, man, I don't know. What else would you do it for? (laughs) I think they do it like just for the movement. They just like hiking. Yeah. Yeah. So people have talked about like how much time that you spend at the top of the hike or at the (laughs) I think that's so interesting. Like some people really are just like, I really don't care to like sit and watch. It's like kind of a waste of my time. I'd rather be. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I don't, I don't buy it. (laughs) I don't buy it. I'm going to need some research to back this up. Okay. I want to know what are more of the things that you like your favorite ways to exercise, Mm. favorite ways you move your body. I think, so, yeah, like I said, hiking does give me the ability to be outside. So I think most of the times I want to do something where I can be outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a, a lot of great running trails up the canyons around us. So um, running or jogging has been one of my favorite forms of exercise mm-hmm. if I'm able to be outside. Put me on a treadmill. That's a different story. Oh, I hate the treadmill. Mm-hmm. Personally. Which is why right now. Although I really like the, like the power, power walk something 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 catchy title where like you put on like this sick beat and you like walk to the beat oh. and you feel awesome that has like kind of blown up i hear people doing it all the time hot girl hot hot girl walk. is it the same one that like shows you a video of someone doing it like in real time uh-huh yeah okay. interesting I, I, I tried it i have done it once and i did feel kind of cool because i hate i think it treadmill is too boring for me I think that's part of why I like to be outside is that like... But you also enjoy cycling, right? I do. Okay. So yeah, we're different people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do, I do, I do. We are yeah. different people. But otherwise, I think my favorite things would probably be more um, more cardio activities that are like dancing and yeah. um, things that don't feel like exercise but are act- but are actually exercise. Um, and that was actually one of my goals this year is to implement more of those fun activities. Very cool. Uh, to round out like our look into exercise and early education, I, I want to highlight an article titled What Motivates Girls to Take Up Exercise During Adolescence? It was published in the British Journal of Health Psychology, and um, it had a sample size of about 100 girls around the age of 13 and followed them for about a year. It found that most participants reported being more interested in exercising for their health in the future And not surprisingly, their motivation appeared to be only partially internalized as health was still viewed primarily as the value promoted by respected others. So their parents and leaders and the media in general. Many girls um, conflated being healthy with being thin and health for appearance related weight control was experienced as an extrinsic or like a controlling goal Mm. for these girls that were followed in the study. What is your first impression of those results in this very small sample size, but I think easily representative of a lot of girls' experiences in, you know, junior high and high school? None of that surprises me in the slightest, again, because I was once a teenage girl. Uh, The conversation around weight and exercise, I know, dominates pretty much every conversation between Mm -hmm. other teenage girls at parties and sleepovers and dinners and um you know anytime where you have a group of teenage girls gathered probably weight and exercise are going to come up and those two things were always correlated like in my mind those two things had such a direct impact it was never like hey you know what fun ways of exercise have you been implementing lately (laughs) like no it was more like 
guess how much weight I lost doing this diet or doing this, um, you know, workout routine. So, oh, you couldn't pay me enough money to go back to high school. (laughs) Can I pay you a little bit of money now (laughs) to go back as, as you, how you are now? Oh no. Okay. What would you say to little Kylie in high school? What is something that you would say? Oh, okay. So I know in past episodes, I've kind of joked about how I wish I could give past versions of myself a hug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're like going through it. Um, definitely the teenage version of myself needed the most love of any other version. Um, so I'd probably tell her that, you know, having the ability to move your body at all is a huge privilege. Um, we don't talk enough about how privileged we are that we have bodies that do move and bend and stretch and run and play um I would also tell her to honor her desires to run and jump and move and play um and at the same time would also tell her that um the purpose of those activities is not to change who you are that you know there's going to be many different shapes that you take on (laughs) over Mm -hmm. the next few years uh your weight's going to fluctuate you know your appearance is going to differ um, but all of those forms and mm-hmm. of your body are good ones. Um, exercise is not meant to just change who you are, um, but just to give you an outlet for self-expression and, and fun. I love that, Kylie. You're speaking to my teenage <laughs> self, too. And just like as a, a quick hash, I, it bugs me to no end that our high school bodies are kind of like lifted up and celebrated as our peak Mm -hmm. physical form like why my body hadn't finished maturing like still going through puberty my friend um my brain hadn't even developed yet so why do I expect my body to have fully developed and so whenever I would hear friends or even myself say like oh I need to be looking like I did during those years I need to be exercising so that I look that way it just does not compute in my mind. No, there is nothing that makes sense about it. The same way that I don't look at my myself at five and think, oh, I, I wish I was still that person. No, mm. like, um, again, that body served its purpose at that time. And yeah, my body looks and, and performs a lot differently mm. than it did um, when it was in high school. Mm-hmm. And also, I am so glad that I am not the same person that I was in high school in so many ways. Yeah. Um, and also in physical ways. I'm glad that as I've grown, that my body has also grown and taken on, again, like I said, different shapes and forms, and that I've also learned to love myself um, in different stages of life. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of times those differences and how my body presents itself are because I have had different experiences that have um, changed patterns in my life or people in my life um you needed and wanted different things at different times absolutely and those are things that I wish we'd celebrate at least for me I can't I have a very small tolerance for when I do get around circles of friends and that does seem to be the topic of conversation like right. idealizing at past usually smaller versions mm-hmm. of ourselves um it's not productive and it's also it's it's not a way to show your current body love and appreciation for the ways that it does help and support you. So Vox released an article called why you shouldn't exercise to lose weight. And it explained with several research studies to back up their statements. First, they shared a story that I know a lot of people can 
empathize with. And it was regarding um, exercising to earn food, Mm. burning calories so that you can eat. And to be honest, I actually disliked a huge amount of the information that they presented in this article and the way that they talked about weight in the article was really unhelpful. In fact, most articles that I looked into or news sites um, that I, you know, reviewed when gathering information for this episode were that way. And this is probably because of how much the diet and wellness industry make off of us thinking that way about Mm -hmm. our exercise. So Kylie, can you read some of the statistics surrounding the fitness industry? Absolutely. So the global gym industry is worth $96.7 billion in 2020, with more than 184 million gym members in total. The world holds over 200,000 health and fitness clubs or chains, not including private gyms. The United States, Germany, and the United Kingdom have the highest number of fitness club memberships. Currently, the main fitness trends are fitness trackers, HIT, group training, fitness programs for older adults, and body weight training. A few statistics show that 41% of U.S.-based gym goers work out because they wish to lose weight. Yeah. Uh... There's a lot of money to be made there, clearly, and a lot of people that buy into the system. After reading those statistics and based on your own experiences, what ways would you say that diet and wellness culture relate to the fitness industry? I mean, obviously, it is they are connected in the way that they are both such big money makers. It's clear that they also both rely on like return consumers. Um, so I think to some extent, they both encourage us to feel shame about our bodies as a way to essentially light the fire under us, uh, to get us to move towards some kind of change in our behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, with the diet industry, they count on usually how unsustainable, uh, food plans that they create 100%. are, um, which drive dieters again to, uh, eventually quit a diet, uh, regain weight and then restart the diet, mm-hmm. um, again and again, kind of that cycle of dieting. And then, that same culture kind of exists inside gyms and fitness clubs um, of kind of competition and the idea that like you always need to be improving and there's no matter how many hours you spend at the gym, there's always some other muscle you could tone or define. Um, And then they also have a lot of fitness plans that are kind of um, equivalent to some of those diet trends where they kind of rely on you burning out and then mm-hmm. having to restart. One of them I thought about was the 75 hard challenge. Oh yeah. I've heard, heard about the hard and the soft. Uh-huh. So I've had several friends um, take that on. Mm-hmm. Um, and just about every one of them mentioned at some point that they were like throwing up partway through, couldn't keep food down, feeling really sick. And all I could think was just like, obviously there's not a sustainable yeah trend to follow in like your fitness and uh food intake and it's just interesting that I think some of those same ways you know you might quit halfway through your 75 day challenge Mm -hmm. and then they're going to count on you eventually wanting to restart it so that you can eventually get through the 75 days right crazy um I had a friend actually mention that they they finally found a gym that they really liked because they liked the classes that they offered and they thought that was super fun but even this gym that they loved um, had a program in place where like you're competing with people to lose a specific amount of weight Mm. and uploading pictures of yourself for quote unquote progress. Um, and it just, yeah, it, it, it really taints the whole experience for people. And I know that there are some people that really thrive on that aspect of competition. Um, but anytime that you're having to like compete with your own body to become 
what someone else deems as successful, I think it's a good time to check in with yourself. Um, Louise Green um, is an author that wrote an article called Diet Culture um, Off... Oh, sorry. They wrote in an article. Diet culture often plays the catalyst in dismantling our joy for movement by driving an all-or-nothing behavior. Starting and restarting diets often goes hand-in-hand with going all-in on exercise right off the bat. Diet culture has transformed exercise into something loaded for many of us. And I think that highlights exactly what you just talked about with your own experience. Viewing other friends or perhaps yourself. Yeah, that like you you can have a regular routine for exercise. And again, you can have regular routines for food management. Um, But I think the culture of both industries you know, do rely on us to feel shame about our current appearance Mm -hmm. to drive our behaviors to both, you know, extremes of dieting and exercise where you're under eating and over exercising. Right. Yeah. The the deficit, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, all of this being said though, obviously we've heard our whole lives, how important physical activity and exercise are for both our physical and mental health. And I don't want to completely discount that because we know that there is research on how moving impacts our cardiorespiratory fitness and, you know, our muscular strength, our endurance, flexibility, our mood, and even our mind. What I want to push back on is how these are not the aspects that we or others check in with themselves on after moving their body. Our go-to method of measurement is weight. Yeah. And it's interesting that you brought that up because I was actually going to ask you what kind of research you did find about connections between exercise or movement and changes in our mental health. Did Mm -hmm. you find anything that like stood out to you? Yeah. There genuinely, when I said at the beginning of the episode that there is so much, like the internet is just saturated with that information. What is, what causes me to pause is that a lot of the research that put, is put out there is put out by specific organizations that you kind of, you know why they would say what they say. Mm-hmm. But I would say a good general rule that I saw throughout the research was that like 30 minutes of exercise a day, um, five days a week um, will impact your body and your mind positively. Um, I saw a couple that were trying to distinguish between just moving your body and exercise. One of them was like a red flag to me because it said that there's a trend of what they called active couch potatoes, <laughs> which are people that spend a majority of their day sedimentary, sedi- sedentary, <laughs> or <laughs> the a majority of, of a day is a rock. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they exercise for like 30 minutes and they call it good. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing that I kind of want to take away from the research that was out there about how physical activity impacts your mental health is actually regarding regarding your breath work and like mm. when you are breathing more and increasing your oxygen levels, you are at a calmer state, um, you have more clarity in your mind, you'll feel peace more peaceful. It helps with like your blood pressure, all these different kinds of things. So as you're exercising, um, you are also breathing more heavily. Um, and a lot of it is like either spending time with groups. Um, and so you have like a social aspect to it or you're spending time outside. Um, getting yeah, vitamin, vitamin D. D. <laughs> <laughs> you already knew I was going to say it. I, I love that call out that, you know, it's more than just running is going to fix your depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there's been times where I was in kind of like a mental health crisis and someone mentioned to me like, 
Oh, have you have you thought about exercising? Oh. <laughs> I've said red um, flag too many times, but a lot it of is what flags. it is. Um, and again, always coming from a good place. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the hard thing is that, of course, I understand logically that if I do get out and get moving, um, that I will have a lot of those benefits, um, both physically and mentally. But also, there's times when it feels too hard to even walk from my bed to the fridge yeah. to feed myself. And so sometimes you're just not going to have the capacity to mm-hmm. um, undertake a big physical activity. Um, but I like the shout out that, you know, even breath work um, can be something that feels a lot less overwhelming mm-hmm. um, and can just be a good place to start. Either that or uh, if I do have the emotional and uh, mental capacity to um, get myself out the door and even just take a walk um, that the benefits could be bigger than just um, looking toned or fit um, when I go on a run. I think that that ties back directly to the quote earlier about the all or nothing mentality. Like anything that you do is going to improve your mental health rather than saying, Oh, I don't feel up to a run. So I won't do anything. I won't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, also the opposite where you're like, I didn't run yesterday. So that means I need to go run 10 miles today. Like I need to kill myself over it. Uh, one of the things that like just makes my heart so heavy and sad is when someone says that they want to be able to like have their chocolate cake on their birthday. And they're like, I'm going to have to run so much for this chocolate cake. <sighs> like no, that equation you is just have wrong. chocolate cake anytime you want chocolate mm-hmm. cake. That is my life philosophy. I would love that embroidered on a pillow. (laughs) Sorry to have you read one more thing, Kylie. Um, But I want you to read this section from one of Aubrey Gordon's columns in Self. Would you mind? Yeah, I love reading, so it's okay. Um, (laughs) So, healthism was coined by Robert Crawford in a 1980 paper for the International Journal of Health Services. In the 1970s, the U.S. had seen a wave of renewed interest in holistic health and wellness, and Crawford was wary of how that investment in health was curdling into a perceived responsibility to seem healthy to others. He defined healthism as the preoccupation with personal health as a primary, often the primary focus for the definition and achievement of well-being, a goal which is to be attained primarily through the modification of lifestyles. For Crawford, healthism flattened the health of whole populations from a dynamic and multifaceted issue with many and varied influences to a simple matter of personal responsibility. Okay, so it seems like a long quote <laughs> as I had to read it, but essentially, yeah, this man uh, saw that like healthism was going to become uh, a point of like personal responsibility to people and like where you measure input and output, super black and white terms thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard Aubrey Gordon reference similar ideas a few times before between the Maintenance Phase podcast um, and her Instagram. If you're not already following her, it's your fat friend, Y-R-F-A-T-F-R-I-E-N-D. Mm-hmm. On Instagram, definitely follow her. Um, and I think it's a really good thing to call out that as much as we talk about our goals with exercise, being individual, like to feel better, to lose weight, to look good, Oftentimes we like measure the success of our efforts to grow in health by how others are perceiving us, right? right? So are we really healthy if someone else doesn't comment on our body mm. <laughs> or tell us that, you know, we're looking better or looking thinner? Um, I kind of thought of this as like, it's the same thing as if a tree falls <laughs> in a forest, did it even make a sound? But it's like, if a person went to the gym but didn't take a mirror selfie, uh-huh. did they even go? <laughs> 
Okay. So, like, calling people out, taking names, Kylie. <laughs> so, I, I'm guilty. Guilty as charged. But, like, are we measuring our goals by indicators that require others to give us feedback? Mm-hmm. Or are they individual goals that we really can just measure ourselves? That's a really good point. And I want to read one more paragraph from that same article. She says, healthism isn't just a problem for fat people. It's a tool used to further anti-fat bias. Yes, but also ableism, transphobia, misogyny, racism, and more. Healthism shows up when we joke about getting diabetes from a single dessert or when we refer to a rich meal as, quote, heart attack on a plate, implying that those health conditions aren't caused by failures of a perceived personal responsibility to be healthy, not by structural forces that disproportionately harm the health of people living on the other side of power. Healthism shows up when we suggest that trans people should be more worried about the side effects of long-term hormone therapy than their own lived experience of their gender, end quote. And I just want to add to this and seeing that healthism also shows up when we joke about how many calories we need to burn to be able to eat something that we want. So far, we've shown how our perception of exercise was affected in school and by the fitness industry. And now for the elephant in the room, I want to talk briefly about social media and our relationship with fitness. So in what ways do you think about social media and how it influences our perception of exercise? I can't tell you of a darker, more discouraging place uh, than the world of fitness influencer Instagram. Hmm. Um, I've actually made a lot of steps to unfollow or restrict a lot of accounts um, that do have fitness-related material um, just because of the way that they've left me feeling. Uh, I think social media really warps our perception of both what is possible and also what is regular. Mm. <laughs> um, and the fact that there are some people who are... <sighs> posting about how they get up at 5 a.m. every morning, they go for a run, they drink their green smoothie, they do some meditation, Mm -hmm. they journal, um, all before they start work at 7 a.m. somehow. (laughs) Kind of makes my head explode. (laughs) Um, It's just not a reality for me. Um, And if if I'm awake at 7 a.m. and, you know, clock into work on time, that's my victory. So that all being said, I think very few people have access to the kind of time and energy that... um, some of these influencers do um, make us believe is totally. regular. <laughs> um, and social media can also convince us that everyone has the ability to live that way and that it's us who are the weird ones. Like, mm-hmm. why aren't we? Like, there's a right way to schedule your day and a wrong way, and we are doing the right way. Absolutely. And anything else is wrong. Um, a literary analysis focused on some content, uh, like a content analysis of body positive accounts on social media, and they found that there were two predominant appearances, appearance ideals presented on social media, and they are thinspiration, which is the visual or textual images in- intended to inspire weight loss, and fitspiration, which were motivational images and text designed to inspire people to attain fitness goals. They found that inspiration and fitspiration online content did not differ on guilt-inducing messages regarding weight or the body, fat stigmatization, the presence of objectifying phrases and dieting messages, and that 88% of inspiration and 80% of fitspiration content contained one or more of these messages. Okay? Mm. Then... It's not surprising that acute exposure to such content has been found to increase your body's uh, dissatisfaction and a negative mood, and it can decrease your appearance, self-esteem, and women. So I commend you for unfollowing accounts um, and would encourage anyone else, if they feel that, um, that they should also unfollow them for that very impact. 
Definitely. I think it's important to pay attention to whether someone's content leaves you feeling discouraged or empowered. Um, like, are they empowering us to invest more in ourselves, um, to take more time that we need, um, to, to play. Mm -hmm. Like when it, when we're talking about exercise, um, again, there's so many ways to have fun with it. So are they Mm -hmm. encouraging you to, to have fun, to take time for yourself or are they discouraging you by adding shame to an already really hard topic? Yeah, exactly. That same literary analysis, sorry, this will be the last time I reference it. <laughs> it also mentioned that two-fifths of posts contained an appearance-focused theme and that, you know, social media has become a place where people place their most perfect and curated content. Moments on Instagram become pictures with filters and edits, and this fosters creativity, but also, sadly, perfectionism. And for straight-sized, conventionally attractive and privileged individuals, on social media, it may feel like an empowering and validating space. Instead, it encourages obsessive behavior, comparison, and a misunderstanding about our bodies for others. So I think that's a good point, Kylie. Yes. And for those who are thin and do fit conventional beauty norms, they may never think twice about the ramifications of their posts um, or about how making their exercise routines so public does impact those who are following them. It creates this unhealthy idea that doing as many crunches or, um, you know, as many push-ups as you can will give you the same body that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, even though our bodies would all still be different, even if we all exercise the exact same amount and ate the exact same thing every single day. Um, in my mind, it's one of the coolest things about our bodies that they are so different and so unique. Um, so it's just a good call out to be careful before you apply any one size fits all approaches to your health. Exactly. I know we've talked about a couple different action items, uh, main (laughs) one being unfollow accounts that are not serving you, but I thought we could go through a little bit more tangible of a list for people to challenge themselves this week. Um, the first one is to create your list whether it's physical or mental, with activities that you enjoy doing. And if you don't have any currently, which ones did you enjoy doing when you were a kid? So maybe dancing or roller skating. Sometimes it's running for people or weights or flag football or bike riding or scootering, climbing, swimming, pickleball. Just pick your activities that bring you joy. Yeah. And then make space in your week to do those things. So experiment with how much time or where you like to do them, anything that you might need um, supply-wise to do those things um, and start looking into how you can make it happen. I like that. Um, Number three, question your movement motivation. So for example, are you coming from a place mentally where you must do everything in your power to burn calories or else you'll become unacceptable in the eyes of others? Has it become an obsession? Think about how many times that you question how many steps you've taken in a day. Um, do you feel a sense of dread or anxiety surrounding your movement and exercise? Or do you enjoy, genuinely enjoy the way that doing them makes you feel without experiencing dread at the prospect of altering your routine? Yep. And then check in with yourself regularly. So are you having fun? Do you feel good in your body? And are you encouraging this for other people in your life? Uh, identify any other triggers for what could cause you to feel the opposite. Try not to sit alone with your feelings. If you're experiencing anxiety around exercise or feeling stressed about a particular issue, or you might need help feeling comfortable, attempt to communicate that to someone that you love and trust. Yep. And then surround people, surround yourself, sorry, with people who you love and who you feel safe around. Follow people on social media or in your life who also practice these things. 
And lastly, although this episode isn't focused on food, remember that exercising and eating should coexist peacefully alongside one another. Movement isn't a prerequisite or punishment for eating, and we all need to eat regardless of whether movement is in the cards that day. And remember that the purpose of exercise also isn't to change your body. There's no right way to have a body or to exist within your body. Moving your body should be an act of self-care and should cultivate self-love. Doing more of it should cultivate even more self-love and... We're excited to see what self-love you cultivate. So much (laughs) self-love. Well, that's all we have to share with you today. Thanks for listening and stay curious, folks. And remember to keep asking. But but now what? what?